I'm Janie Foote. I'm at the Faculty of Sexual and Reproductive Health Care Annual Scientific Meeting in Birmingham. Um, I'm talking right now with Linda Pepper, who has recently joined our journal, the BMJ Sexual and Reproductive Health, as our patient and public involvement editor. Linda's at the conference, and I'd really be keen to hear um, what she's been discovering, who she's been talking to, and what has excited her about the conference. So, over to you, Linda. Hi, Janie. I was six years with the Women's Health Network from Royal College of Obstagyne, and from that was the Women's Network person on the faculty. So I've been involved with the faculty for six years, and my term's finished now. Um, so I asked to come here, because A, it keeps me up to date, because I'm a woman of a certain age, is no longer working directly in the area, but have a big background in believing that if you listen to people who use services, you can make those services better. So I have a big background in patient public involvement for the last sort of 40 years, and that's been very interesting to be here for this two days. There have been some very, very thought-provoking issues. Um, I think everybody's a bit brain-dead with the sheer <laughs> volume of kind of information that's coming out. There have been excellent speakers, and it, it's made me think about some of the things that I think, oh my God, things have gone worse in sexual reproductive health in sort of the 80s and other times when I've been excited because things are much more open now. So it's created, it's created that with me. I think we've had some really excellent speakers, um, very thought-provoking. A lot of people have come up and said, well, what does it mean, a patient public involvement editor? And I've been explaining that it's very new for the journal. What we're trying to do is um, when papers come in, we want to know really how have researchers chosen the research topic that they've chosen? Was that done in conjunction with patients and the public? Is it people ask for that or is it, is it their own interests? Um, how have they included people as part of the research process? Have they piloted it with, with patients? Um, have patients had a say in, in how it was conducted and the methods used? And I think particularly for me, I want to know is, okay, you've done this bit of research, patients have given you all this information, you write it up, how are patients ever going to hear back about what's happened as a result of what they've offered? And I think the, we're not good in the NHS at doing that. We, do, we ask patients a lot, they fill in surveys, they do focus groups, they do all sorts of things with us. And they never then know what happened as a result. And I think that's what we're asking our contributors to do for the journal. We want to know, have you thought this through? How will those people that you've, you've taken up their time, they've given you all this information, how, how are they going to know as a result of this study? And I think it, it's quite a new way of doing things and people are not necessarily used to thinking about those things. So it'll be a process over time, I think, for us. In, indeed it will. It's, it's a very new initiative for yeah. our journal and um, hopefully we'll see some changes over hopefully months. And it's excellent that you're involved with us and helping us to monitor, audit it and yeah. track the improvements. So the conference itself specifically, um, you mentioned some things seem to have gone backwards mm -hmm. and others there have been great improvements. Would you like to just give a few examples of where you think we might have gone backwards? I think we had a fascinating talk on you know, women asking for labiaplasty. Young women are not happy with what their vulvas look like and wanting medical intervention. I'm absolutely appalled by this because I'm from an era of, as when 
in order to help women um, take control over their bodies, they, they needed to know about their bodies. And whereas men can stand in a line when they're peeing and see what other men's penises look like, women are not used to seeing other women's vulvas. So what we did in the 80s, we sat in circles with our knickers off and um, with mirrors in front of us, and we looked at each other's vulvas and realized, my God, look at, look at them, they're all different. And we had plastic speculums and we actually looked at each other's cervixes to see all cervixes are different as well. And that, that felt really, really empowering for us as women to understand our own bodies. And then looking at all this stuff now about labioplasty, I just felt, oh my heavens, look where, we, where we've got to. Well, it was all looking so positive at, at one bit. Yes. And, you know, another thing, looking at how difficult it is for what are classed as you know, sexual minority women who don't identify themselves as, as, as women or, or who they have sex with or whatever, but if they want children, then having to go down an IVF role. When in my day, and this is pre-HIV, then the gay community was, was donating sperm for lesbian women, and there was a whole lot of scooters going across London carrying um, warm sperm between women's breasts, and then self-insemination with turkey basters. And it was about women then having control over their fertility without going through that medical <laughs> And, you know, then HIV comes along, and it's, it's obviously, you know, much more difficult to have any, you know, anonymous sperm. Um, without any sort of testing. But the flip side of that is, and I've got women's health education background, as a tutor organiser, having a tutor who was tutoring one of my courses, which were women only, and was having to live as a woman for a year before anybody would do anything in terms of hormone treatment. So, But they were not getting on well with the students who were coming to me to complain and... I couldn't disclose the position and I felt very, very isolated. When looking today, there was a really positive example of the whole um, trans issues and, and cisgender, all these new terms that were never around in those days. And the fact that people are talking openly, I was really heartened by that. Mm. So those are sort of two flip sides of what it's prompted in me. And indeed, of course, the faculty has a, a guideline, doesn't it, that yes. was published yeah. last year, yeah. uh, specifically for transgender yeah. Yeah. Um, scenarios, etc., which is, which is very helpful. Listeners will be able to get guidance on, on many of these yeah, issues. And, and also, with Royal College of Obs and Gynae, um, in, in the Women's Network, we had a person came who identified as non-binary, and you looking at them, you would have thought they were male, but in fact they had female reproductive parts. And that person was explaining the difficulties of getting a cervical smear or having anything to do with the fact that they had female reproductive organs. And I felt that was really good because that was Royal College Robs and Gynae, and it, it's a bit like sometimes the colleges take a little while to, to, to respond to what's really happening out there. And it feels that the college, just like the faculty, is taking these issues on board, and that's really heartening. It's really no, it's, heartening. It's good. Yeah. Um, yesterday's conference, there were some talks on SRE, sexual and relationship education. Mm -hmm. Anything um, that came out of that or that excited you? Or Yes, because it updated me in terms of where we're at with that now. I'm so pleased it's going to be mandatory. All schools are going to have to do it. I mean, the way they do it is... A bit piecemeal, isn't it? Will, it, it, it? Yeah, it, it'll be interesting to see. Um, 
and the fact that it's about relationship education and to go against all this stuff you see in the awful press about, you know, five-year-olds being told about sex when it's not about that at all. Mm. So I gave an example yesterday of um, how I taught my five-year-old because new curriculum is exactly how I did it 30 years ago, which was about teaching my daughter how to be comfortable when people touched you and where they touched you. Mm. and to be able to say and there was a lot of material out at the time and that's one of those things why isn't it still around there was loads mm. of material that where where parents could talk to their children about this so it was about sharing my body mm. so there were diagrams of children to say like, yeah, it's okay to touch that bit and this bit so it's made them safe when mm. they're out there in terms yes. of that and it needs to be quite simple doesn't it, it yeah needs to be... but it backfired on me because my my mother wanted to hug my daughter and my daughter at age five said no grandma I don't want to share my body with you oh <laughs> so my mother said wait what's that about and I said I'm trying to teach her that, that you know to be safe and stuff and then you know we had a huge family row that I was I was you know accusing her of abusing my daughter and couldn't get her to see it's that generational thing it's that generational thing but it, it, it reminded me the way they were talking about how the curriculum should be over SRE and, and it's, it needs to be age appropriate mm. you know so we're not teaching kids about sex at age five but we're teaching them things like what's okay with other people and it's a shame those materials aren't still around well I'm so glad you've enjoyed your your visit to Birmingham, yeah, I think, as we all have. But um, enjoy the rest of your time here. Yeah, and we are delighted that you are on board as our mm. PPI editor. I'm and very look- pleased. It's sort of after being involved in SRH since the age of 17, and I'm now 70. Right. Then it feels like um, a nice winding up oh, at, the, at the end of a lot of, lot of experience. So I'm very pleased to be part of it. Yeah, thank Brilliant. You. Well, thank you. We look forward to some great contributions, Linda. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.